Teresa Couture, and this is the Embodied Black Girl Podcast, a podcast about decolonizing our imagination, envisioning a new earth, and getting free together. Hello, 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 loves. I hope that you have been well and thriving in this season. It has been a minute, and I'm so excited to be back. Um, with the podcast and really excited to be sharing this conversation with none other than Sonia Renee Taylor. This conversation was actually recorded during our Embodied Black Girl 2021 Global Healing Day, which is a free event for Black women and Black femmes to come together to really center our healing. And while we were having this conversation, It was really clear that this conversation was meant to be shared beyond just the folks who attended Global Healing Day. And it was really meant to be shared with anyone who is devoted to individual and collective healing and liberation. There are so many gems that Sonia shared in this conversation. It truly is mind-blowing and amazing, and I'm so grateful for her presence and for the real love that she poured into this conversation and into our community. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. And even after we had this conversation, I received so many emails and so many messages of folks requesting access to this. So I'm really just happy to be sharing it widely with so many folks. Before we dive in, there are two tidbits that I want to share that Global Healing Day 2022 is actually already in the works. So if you're a black woman, you're a black femme, you're a woman of color, you're invited to join us um, and just join the embodiedblackgirl.com um, newsletter and you will be the first to know when that arrives. And the second announcement that I have is that I'm hosting a brand new free workshop entitled Get Free, How to Heal from Intergenerational Pain and Reclaim Healing and Joy as Your Birthright. This is a brand new free workshop and I'm going to be hosting it a couple of times. We'll see how much, but if you can catch it, I highly recommend to catching it because it's really about healing and this is open to anyone, no matter how you identify. And this is really about the collective work that we all need to do to truly heal. So you can sign up for that for free at getfree.me. 
and I'd love to to have you. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Sonia Renee Taylor. Welcome, Sonia. Welcome back, everyone. We have the brilliant Sonia Renee Taylor with us today, and I know we're in for a treat. I just can't wait for this blessing to unfold. Um, and if you haven't heard of Sonia or don't know um, her work, I want to share a little bit more about her. So Sonia Renee Taylor is a New York Times best-selling author. She's the founder and radical executive officer of The Body Is Not An Apology, a digital media and education company committed to radical self-love and body empowerment as the foundational tool for social justice. Sonia has shared her work as an award-winning performance poet, activist, and educator in numerous countries and on major media outlets around the world, reaching hundreds of thousands of people with her commitment to radical self-love and transformation. Sonia continues to perform, speak, and facilitate workshops globally. You can find her at SoniaReneeTaylor.com and the body is not an apology.com. So welcome, welcome, Sonia. I am delighted and I know we're all delighted to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for accepting the invitation. And I guess I, I want to tell um, folks how it came. I Actually, it was just spirit. And in that moment, when I was like, oh, there's supposed to be a guest, I wasn't even thinking about, I was like, who is this guest? And then in a flash, it was like, Sonia, I heard it. And then I wrote the email, like literally right, a, right ahead, because what I'm trying to work on is to move at the speed of spirit. And that's something that um, Layla Saad had shared with me that um, Frantonia had shared with her. And um, so I'm so happy and so honored that you even said yes to this. Um, and in talking with your team, they asked me like a whole bunch of questions. So I was like, that's great that I was learning from that. I was like, okay, dotting my I's, crossing my T's making sure this is in alignment. So I, you know, even just working with your team who, who they're amazing. We're like, oh, how was your weekend? We're like friends now. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you. And I'm just, um, your generosity brought me to tears. So thank you. Thank you. I'm so, one, I'm always elated that I know that the people who, who sort of manage the funk pricing thing, that the, that's where relationships starts, right? And so if, if they not right, then <laughs> there's no reason to trust that engaging with me is going to be right. So I'm very, very glad. <laughs> I'm always joyful when I hear that, like, the, that the alignment was present. And yeah, and when I saw this and it was like global day of healing for black women, sounds like a thing I would absolutely do. <laughs> if I, no matter what, I should be at it. So um, it was, yeah, it's a delight to get a chance to, to be a part of it. Well, thank you for saying that, Sonia. Um, and 
First, I have to say that I was sitting with and feeling into, okay, so what can I ask? Uh, what, what am I going to ask? You know, I've heard a lot of your interviews. And I was like, what can I say? But I don't know. I kept looking at the cover of your book. And um, I'm holding it up for those of you who are any, unable to see. But I'm holding it up, the cover, this beautiful cover. And I have to first say the cover is absolutely stunning. Here we have a black woman a dark-skinned black woman who's not a size zero, who's nude with strategically placed petals, fully embodying herself with purple and green butterfly wings and a sunflower crown on her head. And I think it's really easy to just gloss it in because we see so many things, right? And I really wanted to take that in and let that be what moves the conversation. Because the journey of being able to be on this cover, not in a, in a way that's fully embodied, in a way that's an, un, unapologetic, I want you to share a little bit about that journey of how you got on this cover. Fully embodied, fully embodied the way that you're showing up right there. Yeah, um, it's interesting as you were talking about it. It was just sort of taking me back to the process that was, you know, this cover. And if anybody is familiar with my work, you know, this is the second edition of the Body Is Not an Apology. The first edition was released in 2018, um, and I'm still naked. I'm naked on. I was naked on that one too. <laughs> Uh, but the background is all flower petals. It's all purple hydrangeas uh, is the first one. And, you know, so I want to talk a little bit first about like how the picture came into being. And the picture came into being because a photographer named Carrie Fruff out of, um, uh, out of San Francisco, California, had envisioned making, remaking this kind of visual from the movie American Beauty. And I don't know if you all remember that movie, but uh, Mira Servino, I believe, was the actress in it. And she's naked in a bit of red rose petals. And she's the fantasy of Kevin Spacey in this dream. Um, the now canceled Kevin Spacey. I think we canceled it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a different conversation. Um, and so the so they share this, you know, this photo. And Carrie said... I want to redo this, but I want to redo this with all kinds of women's bodies. I want to um, have, you know, all women's, I want trans women and I want cis women and I want fat women and I want thin women and I want black women and, you know, Asian women and Pacific Islanders. I want all kinds of women's bodies. And, um, and so it was this, you know, spread of multiple women. And I loved, I loved, loved, loved the photo. Um, but I can't say that I went in like, I'm so excited to be naked. It was not, <laughs> you know, that was not how I walked into that activity. Um, I mean, I got hired is really what it is. You was like, I'm gonna hire you to do this thing. I actually don't, I don't even know if I actually got paid. I don't think I got paid. I think what, but I worked with them many times and have done lots of spreads with them. And so it was kind of a place where I got to be a pretend model and so I liked doing that. I was like, oh, that's fun. I get to kind of be a pretend model. And so 
the um, photo shoot went really, really well. It went viral. I think like Ashton Kutcher reposted it. It was, it was, <laughs> it was a thing. And so then when we moved to the to the book phase, right? When I and I tell the story in the second edition. When I walked into the to my publisher's um, offices for our meeting about the cover, I love. I was like, "Oh, like we can have like a Brady Bunch mosaic of different bodies that kind of look like this. Like that'll be great. It'll be like tiles, and and it'll be the back of the book." So I was gonna have naked people who weren't gonna be me, <laughs> but on the back of the book, <laughs> and my editor so quickly was like, I mean, when I, sh when I shared that photo, there was an audible gasp in the room. And then my editor was like, that's it. And I was like, no, 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 that's not why I showed you this picture. I didn't show you this picture so that I could be <laughs> I showed you this so we could plug some other professional model <laughs> onto a similar thing. And he's like, no, Sonia, which I thought was this interesting. It was one of the first sort of expression where I got that my editor, like my editor probably got it more um, in depth than I did. Like he better understood in that moment at least. And I think this is true of the work of radical self-love is sometimes we can see it for other people before we can see it for ourselves. That's often the case, right? We're like, no, I want you to love you. And then we miss all the places where we're not practicing it ourselves. And yeah, so, you know, he convinced me to, to do this after I worked through what it would mean to be naked in Barnes and Noble, you know, for my daddy to pick up the book and be like, oh, my God. I was like, can my daddy show me off? I'm very naked. <laughs> All these kinds of questions. Uh, but we worked through it and, you know, it was one of the sort of most powerful transformative actions of putting the book out in the world was saying, I deserve in the fullness of my fat, black, queer, bald body. I deserve uh, the fullness of visibility. I deserve to be seen. I deserve. I deserve to be seen and treated preciously. You know, I deserve to be um, appreciated in the fullness of my being. Uh, and so that was how the first one came about. And then in the second book, you know, I really wanted. I wanted us. To because you know, for many people who read the first edition and we're reading the second edition, it's the continuation of a journey. It is, it's like, oh, I took up this thing, and whoo, that's not, I didn't take up an easy thing, I took up a, a cathartic metamorphosis thing, I took up something that has transformed me. And when the illustrators sent over the image of you know, the original photo, but now as a butterfly. I just thought there wasn't anything that could capture more perfectly what the work of radical self-love is, right? Which is that caterpillar to butterfly journey, that being disassembled for the purpose of what our highest form might look like. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how the book came to be. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that story. And um, I love that imagery of, you know, the cap caterpillar to the butterfly. And um, what, what really comes up is this moment in time that we're in um, and how it relates to this conversation that we're having, we're starting to have around radical self-love. And so in your mind, in your heart, in your body, in your soul, what is the significance of this time 
and what does it mean to heal and radically love ourselves in this time? Yeah, um, I think that this this time is, you know, I'm situating myself. I've been in this conversation about radical self-love for a decade. And so it is kind of trippy, right? It's kind of trippy to be in 2021 and watch it become a conversation that, you know, that the masses is having, right? And it's, and it's, and I think that it's because, um, I think it's because we tried everything else and it ain't worked, you know? <laughs> I think it's because, I think it's because we are exhausted. And, the, and I think COVID brought a certain level of like, of, of surrender, right? There was a level of surrender that on a human level, on a humanity, um, humanity level experience, we were like, oh, we don't, we don't know shit. We ain't got control of shit. We don't, we, <laughs> I, mercy, right? Like I give, right? And I think that there is something about when we are in that space, that, that place of breakdown, which if we're going to keep talking about the butterfly piece, right, is the, the part of the chrysalis where you must be decomposed, right? The part where you are rendered to goo, <laughs> right? And it's like, oh, I don't have any control over this process. This is not, this is way out of my pay grade, as they say. And this confluence of issues, this confluence of a pandemic, this confluence of sort of the, um, a, you know, a heightening point, I don't even know, yeah, a tipping point in the sense that it's created a, a different level of consciousness, tipping point of um, of white supremacist violence, you know, in terms of it's like visibility, that all of these pieces together have created a place where we're like, we have tried to war it away. We have tried to hate ourselves to death. We have tried to, you know, hoard and disconnect and scarcity it away. We have tried all manner of things to try to wrestle control back and none of it has worked. And this is where we are. And so what are, what are the offerings in the world right now that might soothe me, that might offer a balm, that might help me see something I couldn't see before? And I believe that, you know, radical self-love is one of those offerings. Um, but what I love about radical self-love is one of those offerings is that it ain't nothing new. <laughs> and that's often what happens when we give and and again to return to this butterfly metaphor, when the caterpillar turns to goo, it is not actually becoming a new thing. It is becoming the version that was already encoded in its DNA. It's just the old thing had to die away, right? But it's not something new. The butterfly is not like, I'm a new but Those cells, I learned that those cells are called imaginal cells. And first of all, when I learned that, I was just like, whoo! <laughs> like, right, because whatever it is that creates things had already imagined the highest form of the, of the caterpillar already knew it, already encoded it in its DNA. And the caterpillar just had to be willing to surrender the thing it thought it knew for the possibility of what it might become, right? 
And it didn't have to, it, the caterpillar doesn't know the ending consciously, but the caterpillar knows the inner, in, ending on a cellular level. The caterpillar knows the ending on an internal level. And so it surrenders to what feels like it's destruction so that it might become what it was always meant to be. And that is the journey of radical self-love right now, is that there's a way in which we're being offered to surrender the way we thought it was supposed to be, the way it's always been, the way we've always done it, the, the fear we've always been in for the possibility of what could be, which is what we have always been. Yeah. Preach, 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 preach. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I'm just taking in all the mo uh, the comments in the chat. They're coming. They're like, preach. Wow. Wow. Powerful. And it's so powerful um, what you shared around that those cells are called imaginal cells. And within the, within the butterfly, what the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly, the goo and then the butterfly. And you talked about surrender. So what is it that you think we all need to surrender to in order to become what is encoded within us? Yeah, so the, the surrender to me is on many levels. And I think that that's the reason why I talk about, I'm so, I love, I'm seeing so many, so many friends in the chat, hi friends. Uh, <laughs> I think there are so many, there are levels, right? There are, we have to surrender at the individual level. We have to surrender at the interpersonal level. We have to surrender at the systemic and structural level. And one of the things that I think we have to, one of the key things that I think we have to surrender is the, first of all, at the, in, at the individual level, we have to surrender the idea um, that there is some external thing that will make us enough. That there is some external thing out in the world that will validate us into our worthiness. Um, and I offer that the way to surrender that is to just try on what if it already is? What if, what if my imaginal cells already coded me as enough, as worthy, as inherently divine, right? And so if that is the case, then what is the external things that are keeping me from manifesting my, what are the, what are the internal indoctrinations that are keeping me from my fullest manifestation? Right. That's the that's the thing we're invited to check out is, OK, if it's already me, I'm already I'm already radical love. I'm all I came here as radical love. I came here in right relationship with my being, my body, my divinity. I came and you've never seen a baby that didn't know they were divine. <laughs> you never seen a toddler who wasn't like this world's about me. Right. Like, we come here understanding our inherent divinity, our inherent divinity, our inherent enoughness. And then we get convinced that what we know is a lot, right? We can, I, you know, it makes me, I wonder if the caterpillar was like, oh, I know I'm gonna be a butterfly. And then, you know, and then whatever eats caterpillars was like, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not, you're not, you're not gonna be nothing. You ain't never gonna be nothing but a little raggedy caterpillar. And then the caterpillar started believing it, right? until the conditions of believing it became so uncomfortable that the caterpillar was like, I'm gonna have to go inward, right? I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna stop looking out there at the things that keep telling me that I'm not enough and I'm gonna go inward. And I, maybe, I, there, I, maybe I don't know what I'll be, but 
I know that I'm not going to find it out there. Right. And so that's level one is that that internal journey, right? That thing that we have to give up, that story of not enoughness and that story that somehow enoughness will come from some external place. That's level number two, that interpersonal and community place where we are situating and relation, relating um, to our own enoughness inside of a system of comparison, inside of a, I'm enough if I'm better than. I'm enough, I'm not enough if I'm less than. Um, and how we define the better than and less than is the structural and systemic. It's the story of I'm better if I have more money and I'm less than if I don't, capitalism. I'm better if I have a thinner body and I'm less than if I have a bigger body, fat phobia. I'm better if I have an able body and I'm less than if I don't, just, you know, ableism. I'm better if I'm white or closer to white or lighter with finer hair and a thinner nose, white supremacist delusion, racism, whatever we want to call it. Right. So we start to be like, oh, here are all these systems that have informed what then makes me enough. Right. And that that system is how I situate my own identity and how I situate all y'all, whether I'm conscious of it or not. And so the practice right now is how can I give up the story that there is any way of being that can be less than or greater than another if if we all came here with the birthright of our inherent divinity if i if we all came here as enough right then whatever story of less than or greater than which is a story of scarcity right like cuz you can only have more or less in a limited quantity right like in order for there to be more or less of something there has to be a finite something but if I am not finite, if we are not finite, if who we are in the, in the internal mechanisms of us are infinite, are as vast as that which created us, right? then more or less is not a real thing. It's an illusion. And so the surrendering is the surrender of the illusion that you could be anything other than the manifestation of the divine in physical form. That's that's those that's some of the things I think we can give up, surrender in this process. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm and as you were talking, I just kept thinking about a word that you often talk about um, being on this body, bodily hierarchy. And as soon as we divest from or we get off that ladder that's what that's actually what you say you know we're on this ladder and we're like okay i want to get to the top and oh but at least i'm not all the way at the bottom look at them all right i'm 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 not too i'm not too bad and divesting from that that bodily ladder which also makes me think about when you talk about body terrorism and how how does that relate to body terrorism that concept yeah, so body terrorism is the system and structure that is so violent against bodies that it 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 makes us reaffirm the ladder. Like, you know, it's like if you get off the ladder, I'll kill you. You know, if you try to get off the ladder, I kill you. If you try to if you try to exert your own autonomy over your own body, we will blow up abortion clinics. <laughs> you know, if you try to um if you try to propose that your life matters, we will 
began to murder black people in the streets on camera with impunity so that you don't get it twisted. You know, um, we will, you know, we will encode violence in inside of the medical system such that as a fat person, you just stop going because you know they're not going to do nothing but diagnose you with fatness. Right. And so you'll just catch your cancer late because it's better than the indignity. Right. That you have to to navigate inside of that system. That's body terrorism. Body terrorism are the systems and structures and their outcomes on our lives that are deadly, that are so violent um, that they that they keep us from disrupting the status quo or they punish us greatly when we do. And so inside of the they reaffirm the ladder of hierarchy because we're like, well, let me find let me find a place that's safe on the ladder. Because when I disrupt it, you know, and it's the reason why there are, you know, when we see these movements, you know, Black Lives Matter started in 2012, you know, like when Trayvon Martin was killed. It's, it took 2020 for Black Lives Matter to become a, to become something that politicians would actually utter. Right. Uh, and that's because the the violence the like gaslighting the uh beating down of folks so intentionally such that people become afraid to to align themselves with anything that challenges that status quo people are like well but what if what if i lose my job how will i feed my kids what if what if somebody gets hurt what if like all the considerations that i'm not that are are real considerations i'm never proposing that they are not but they are considerations that will always come at the expense of our freedom. They will always come. They will make you ask, which would you rather? Would you rather be free or would you rather be safe? But I think it's important that once we recognize that safety, safety is an illusion. Safety is a Ill super illusion if you are marginalized already. Safety is a joke. Safety is something they tell you you could have that they never intended to give you anyway. And so once you realize that's the case, like, oh, I wasn't, y'all was going to kill me no how. <laughs> you was going to kill me anyhow. So in the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, if I am going to fall, I will fall five feet, three inches towards my freedom. And that's the, that's the positioning. That's the offering of, of, of what it takes for us to decide to stand up to body terrorism. So, yeah. Yeah, what's coming up, so much, but um, what's coming up either, do you wanna be safe or do you wanna be free? And so many people I see have chosen safety the, or the illusion of safety, and then they realize something happens and they realize, oh, I thought we, I was safe or I thought we were safe, and then actually we're not safe. And um, I just think that's, that's so powerful in terms of zoning in on that, that choice. It's either the illusion of safety or true freedom and liberation. And that includes for all of us. Um, and that that's at the system, again, I really want us to keep being with, that's at the systemic level and at the interpersonal level. That's at the systemic level and at the individual level. And so there are places where we can practice that because it can feel scary to start at the like, it's, it's scary and exhausting to start at the systemic level, right? For many, many, and some people do that 
you know, some people do that and sometimes they do it because it's scary and exhausting to start at the, indiv at the individual level, right? But what I offer is that if we can say that I am being given the, where in my life am I choosing the illusion of safety over my own freedom? Is this relationship I'm in an example of where I'm choosing the illusion of safety over my actual freedom? Is this job <laughs> that I'm in right now and uh, practicing the illusion of safety over my actual freedom? And where are the places where we can start practicing in our individual lives the choice of freedom as, a, as an act of radical self-love? Um, and then as we start to see it in our world, we in our inner world, in our communal world, it becomes that much easier to see it in the systemic, in the structural. And then we feel braver, we feel more powerful, we feel more courageous to begin to lend our efforts to those larger structural and systemic issues. Yeah, I love that you point out this, um, the systemic as well as the interpersonal because throughout, especially after the uprisings, one of the things that, you know, as Embodied Black Girl that I've been doing is just supporting a lot of folks who are organizers, who are activists, and they're burnt out, you know, coming burnt out and not having that interpersonal, looking at what are the interpersonal things that are preventing them from freedom. And if we're trying to create this, or what I say is weave the new world, then it has to start from the inside out where if we're going to weave that new world. And um, that really brings me to the, the framework. And I just feel like radical self-love, like, and you say it is a framework that's rooted in social justice and it's rooted in both the individual as well as the collective. And at the same time, it's like a sharp, U-turn. I was like, it's gonna. Sh it's not a sharp left. It's a U-turn. It's a sharp U-turn from the idea of what self-love we've been sold into, and especially folks who are here. I think many of the folks, majority of folks, identify as Black women, Black femmes, women of color, femmes of color. Um, can you speak to what we've been sold to, what we've been bought into? And I think we we've been on that conversation and how radical self-love weeds us out of that or takes us out of that. Yeah, I think one of the most, you know, sort of pernicious, oh, I'm excited, I haven't had a chance to use the word pernicious in a while. Uh, <laughs> one of the most pernicious ways in which black women and femmes have been sold um, some sort of version of like some bland, paltry, inept version of self-love um, is self-love as, well, so two things. One, I think that Black women and Black films very specifically have been told and sold and bought. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, like, because capitalism, right? Because <laughs> capitalism's entire intention is to sell you the cure for your deficiency, right? And then to sell you something that won't ever actually work so that you are forever customer for your forever deficiencies. That's the entire setup, right? And so, but one of the things that this society has sold black women and femmes is that you are as valuable as you are willing to be a martyr. That you are as valuable as you are willing to be invaluable for the service of others, <laughs> right? And that your value, that your value is directly connected to how many people you save, 
how many times you stay up late, how many times you go without so that somebody else can have, how many times you where you're how many times you're willing to be the mule of the world in service of other people. And I think that the you know the okie doke of that, right, is you get a you get a mule, you get an indisposable society gets an indisposable catalog of mules that they can run to death, right? And then the, but because we are raised and conditioned and indoctrinated to believe that that's actually the thing that makes us the most valuable, we raise our children to be that. And then those, and then those you know, black girls and black femmes come up the same way. And so it's a, you know, it's a, what's the, what's the word? The machine, the conveyor belt. It's a conveyor belt of disposable black women and femme bodies. And so it is radical self-love by the reason the self is in it. And the reason the radical is in it is because one, it requires you to do something that is outside of the boundaries of what society says is acceptable. And what society says is, is acceptable is that black women kill themselves on behalf of the world, right? And so when I decide I'm not gonna do that, it immediately becomes radical. As soon as I, every, I have never in my life, the last two years of my life, there is nothing that excites me more than my no. <laughs> there is nothing that excites me more than my, I'm sorry, no, I can't do that. No, I will not accept that. No, that's not enough money. <laughs> nope, I'm not. <laughs> my no, my no is so radical in a world that has only ever expected my yes. And my um, my unconditional yes. My yes with no regard to my own well-being, to my own mental health, to my own spirit, to my own joy, to my own pleasure, right? And so radical self-love is the redirection of the service and labor and energetic ashe that we give out into the world to return to to come here first to be a place where i it abides in me first and because it abides in me in such richness and such brimming wealth and abundance what everybody else gets is my overflow what everybody else gets is what pours over the side of my cup and what's, what pours over my side of my cup is what's in my cup. So it's good, the good, good too. <laughs> you still get the good, good. You just don't get my, you don't get, you know, call me the university. You can't have my endowment. <laughs> I keep the endowment <laughs> and you get the overflow. And so that's one of the opportunities for, for reorienting the ways in which society tells us we should operate. Right. Well, that's the that's the self-love. That's one of the self-love versions. And then they tell you, all right. OK, well, don't be you don't have to be a martyr. You can do just, you know, like just get a take a bubble bath every once in a again and take and get a massage. That's self-love. Right. <laughs> Light some candles and read a book. That's self-love. And it's not that it is not self-love, but it is the it is a flaccid. Temporary um conditional self-love right 
And and what radical self-love is, is first a, a non-conditional. It's foundational. It's inherent. You can't, you know, it, it's still there if I put the book down. It's there when the bubble bath runs out the water. It's it doesn't go anyplace. And it is an it, it is a an energetic relation to the world that makes me do the brave, scary thing, even when it is scary. Right? Like my radical self-love, my radical self-love was like, you gonna have to find a therapist and talk about your trauma. And that don't feel as good as a massage or a bubble bath. Right? But it is in service of my of my of my journey of healing. It is in service of the work that it takes to decondition myself from the world that tells me I should keep shoving my own shit in the closet so that I can go tend to yours. Right? That's the that's radical self, you know. I posted something a few years ago on a page that's um it was a meme that the AFIA Center, Reproductive Justice Center uh, in Texas posted. And it said, um, abortion is radical self-love. And there was, um, or no, it was, a, no, it said abortion is self-care. And the amount of it, people was mad, right? And, and, under, and, and they were mad because there is this notion that self-care is, is easy, that self-care is, you know, light and fluffy, right? That self-love is some sweet, tender thing you do all the time, right? And that it is not making the most painful decisions sometimes, the most difficult decisions sometimes, the decision that feels like it is going to break everybody's heart and yours. But that too is sometimes radical self-love. And we've got to be willing, we've got to be willing to say I love myself enough to do the hardest thing. I love myself enough to do the scariest thing. I love myself enough to do the thing that puts me that much closer to my own liberation. And that because I recognize that inside of my own liberation is the liberation of everybody else because we are inherently connected. So there's no way if y'all get free and I didn't go, then we ain't free. And if I got free and you ain't there, then we ain't free. And so either way it goes, we are connected. And so that which I do for myself, I do for the world. You know? So yeah, that's that's I don't even know if I'm still answering the question you asked me, but that's what I got. <laughs> come through, come through, Sonia. I mean, just I'm like, okay, I'm picking up the threads. I'm like, there's another thread, there's another thread. You're just just blessing us with so much. And I and I feel like the thread that wants to be picked up is really around Black women, Black femmes being martyrs. And I know that, you know, while we were communicating, um, you were in the process of moving permanently to New Zealand. So can you share a little bit about how that has been your, that choice has been radical self-love for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for asking me that. I've been, you know, as I was making my tea to come sit here, the sun was kind of shining. I'm in my friend's house in an area called New Plymouth, Taranaki. Uh, and the sun was shining in. It just, I get these moments since I've arrived where I just have this, like, this welling up of just 
joy. And there's, it, it's actually, I was like, oh, I'm in the like NRE phase with New Zealand. It's like new relationship energy. I'm like, you're so sexy. Oh my God, I love you. <laughs> and I'm sure, and you know, you call, holler at me in six months, and be like, this, these gonna get on my nerves. But right now, <laughs> right now, it's the new boom, and I'm infatuated. Um, coming here was absolutely an act of um, radical self love. Uh, and and let me actually say this. Coming here was a radical act of self-love, but the first act of self-love, radical self-love, was knowing that I needed to leave. Because I knew I needed to leave without knowing where I was going, but I knew I needed to leave. And that is, again, back to this conversation of like, sometimes it's the hard thing. Sometimes it's the, you know, I, I grew up in the U, I was born in the United States. I was raised in the United States. My entire family is from the United States. I don't know nothing else, but I didn't know nothing else but the U.S. And I knew enough to know that it wasn't where my joy was anymore. All right. And, and radical self-love says, I deserve to find my joy. I deserve that. I deserve joy. Joy is my birthright. You know, and one of the things that I've often said is like, if we're, you know, I talk about this when I talk about writing is like, if we're not writing our joy, we're not writing our survival. Because it is only through the seeking of joy that it is that Black people have actually been able to manage the heinous conditions under which we have been subjected. And so I was like, all right, I don't know where I'm going. But I know, because one of the things the U.S. sells you is, Right, the U.S. one either sells itself as exceptionalism, right? But we we know better because we because we see the trash, right? So we like y'all playing games. Just stop playing in my face with this, right? So you already know it's a lie. But then the next thing it sells you is well, every place is like this. Every place is like this. So why bother? You know where where are we going? Where they don't hate black people is all you know. And I'm like, hey, every. Every version of hate ain't the same, <laughs> first and foremost. I, you know, I will take you on, I, I will take you thinking, who, 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 who? Um, let me get my, let me get my black, my historical black activist names together so I can give you this quote, Greg, and tell me in the chat who said it. Black activist, former, uh, head of SNCC. I'm tripping. Anyway, he was like, it's not my business, right? Like, if you hate me, my, it, it, but it is my business if you have permission to kill me because you hate me. That's the, that's, you know, and that is the, that's the, the structural difference, right? Is that every place is not the United States because every place don't have officers. They put their knee on your neck while other officers stand around and people film until you die, till you're dead. Yeah, Stokely Carmichael. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was like, why can't I come up with Stokely? Stokely's name? My bad. Um, there is, and so like the particular form of physical violence uh, that the United States, uh, as a thought project, has to enact on the black body in order for it to continue to be itself. 
who is the U.S. without the degradation of the black body? It would cease to exist, right? Yes, Stokely Carmichael, who became Kwame Ture. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so when you are residing in a nation state whose identity is formed on your degradation, it is real, real difficult to keep finding joy inside of that context. And I was like, I can't, I cannot give, again, I cannot give to this place because I cannot be an overflow here anymore. It, it takes everything in me to just survive this place, which means I can't give forth joy. I can't give forth any kind of, you know, visionary possibility, a liberatory imagination. I don't have it because I'm just in survival and exhaustion. And I was like, well, what can I do? And I was like, I could leave. <laughs> That's what I could do. I could leave and I can trust. I can, you know, moving at the speed of spirit. I can trust that I'm being directed to that, which is, which is, you know, the manifestation, that which is in the direction of the manifestation of my highest self. That which is always, whatever, wherever I'm going, it is on the same path that makes me a butterfly in the end, wherever I'm going. And I don't have to know where it is. The same way I don't have to know when I go into chrysalis, what's going to come out on the other end, right? And so that is what, that's what prompted that for me. was like that willingness to be in the journey of the unknown with the faith in with the faith that inside of me is all that I need to be birthed into the highest version of myself. And that includes wherever it is that this journey decides to take me. And it took me to New Zealand, you know, it took me to New Zealand, but I was willing to go anywhere. Because <laughs> I was like, I don't know where I'm going, but I know not this, <laughs> you know? And I think that's one of the places where we get to start to say, I may not know that, all of, the only information I need to start is not this anymore. The rest of it will sort itself out. Yeah, and that's, so that's really been the radical self-love journey for me here. And then, you know, New Zealand invited me, like as an energetic, as a spiritual um, practice, as the actual people of the land um, invited me. and. Uh, and I and I felt I felt welcomed here, you know. And and when I came, I didn't know. You know, I told my family when I left. I said, I'm I'm really afraid. I'm I'm leaving a place where I do know that I am deeply loved, and I'm going to some place where no one loves me. Right. And I was terrified of that. Um, but I was reminded that like, if I am inherent, if I am love, if I first of all. If I am love and I am going, then I am going someplace where someone loves me. <laughs> you know? Um, but secondly, that if I am love, then I will attract to me that which I am, which means that I will attract love. And and that's what happened. And that's what it's been. Mm, so beautiful in the comments. And I just want to echo it too. Just wishing you so much joy in New Zealand. That's what Laura shared and everyone is celebrating you. And I feel, I personally feel your joy. And um, it just 
made me think about something you said earlier around um, someone could be hearing this like and thinking, oh, well, I can't leave. And if anyone is thinking that, I invite all of us to go back to what you said about that comparison. So if you have any more words with anyone who's like, well, I'm not in that position. I can't, I, I can't, I'm, I'm in this, you know, a, this situation and I can't. So can you share some words for folks who might feel that? Absolutely. Um, you know, so this is one of those places that is, it's a challenging place because it requires us to both acknowledge the material reality of our existences, right? Like there are, like the truth of the matter is I did have a kind of life that was constructed so I could leave. I ain't got no babies. I don't have, you know, I don't have, I don't have a standard job. I, I've created a life I could get up and move any place, you know? Um, and, and so that piece is true. Right. And I never want to discount that. I never want to discount that. I, you know, that there is a certain level of privilege that I abide in on as a result of, you know, having college degrees and having whatever, you know, and having access to, you know, certain places and certain people, right? Like I'm never, ever, ever proposing that this doesn't, you know, that this choice was not a choice that was also a choice of privilege. What I will say is that there, you know, as much as I love, you know, have come to adore my no, um, I also trust my yes. I trust my yes to me. And, and so again, the, it starts with an intention, right? Like it starts with an intention. Nothing was in place when, it, when I left here. Nothing was like, or, you know, when, when the idea that I don't want to be here no more came, it wasn't like I had planned for it. It wasn't like, and so I set aside $50,000 so that I could move to a new country and work. Like I didn't have any of those things planned. Um, what I did have planned was I won't be here no more. <laughs> and that's where I started. And so I think it is so important for us to, to not start with the, what I can't, you know, like start with the, what I'm not, what I won't. I won't sit here and deal with this no more, <laughs> right? And just position yourself in that place first, right? Because from there, the next thing will avail itself to you. You know, I'll tell you the story of how I got to New Zealand. So like I said, I went here, I was invited in 2009 um, for a writer's festival. And I came in, you know, this was early in my poetry career, uh, or I was, you know, actually I'd been in my poetry career for some years at this point. Um, but this was certainly like the, you know, biggest deal. People were flying me to the bottom of the world to go say some poems. Um, but when I got here, I fell in love. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I love it. Um, one day I'm going to come back. And not like one day I'm going to come back to live, but one day I'm just, one day I want to experience this again. And so step one was I just had, I gave myself a vision. One day I'm going to go back. Okay. Now I ain't had no plans for going back. I seeded the vision with my grandmother. When I came back from my trip, I told my grandmother how much I loved it and how gorgeous and lush the land was and how beautiful and the food and there was seafood and, da -da 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 -da. and my grandmother was like, oh my gosh, I want to go. And I said, grandma, we're going to go together. And that was the plan. Me and my grandmother kept revisiting over the years how we were going to go to New Zealand together. And so again, there's power 
and what we allow ourselves to imagine. And so many times we just won't, we are so in the I can'ts that we can't get to our imagination because our imagination is how we begin to create the energetic space for a thing to come into being. And so just imagine a thing. And, and again, some of us are sometimes so afraid of disappointment, right? That the thing I imagine won't ever happen. So I just don't let myself imagine anymore. And if that is not the manifestation of internalized enslavement, I can't imagine myself free. So I just never imagine myself free no more. All right. That is exactly that is exactly what the systems of body terrorism and bodily oppression desire us to do is to not be able to access, you know, a liberatory imagination for ourselves. Because here's the deal. Even if you never get there in the physical, if you can get there in your mind, you still practice a little bit of freedom. If you never actually physically got to the place, but you can access, because guess what? That's how people in prison survive prison. Is that they can imagine what the outside smells like again. And that's how you stay sane in the conditions of oppression. And so if you can just let yourself have the imagination, you are already beginning to, to, to direct yourself someplace, right? And so I had this with my grandmother and it was so sweet. And so I had that imagination back there. And then the I ain't staying here no more came up around 2016. And I was like, I gotta go. I see the yeah, the orange menace is going to be running this nation. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not kicking it with him. So I don't know where I'm going, but I'm getting out. <laughs> and I bought a book called Getting Out. <laughs> and I bought copies for other people. I started giving away copies. I was like, if you vision and getting out too, let me get you this book. It It's helpful. And, you know, it's it, it gives you some things that are useful. And I started giving out the Getting Out book, envisioning. And then I was like, the imagination that I had tucked in the back of my brain came back and it was like, New Zealand. Have you thought about New Zealand, Sonia? Um, and I happened to have a birthday coming up and I was like, I'm going to go to New Zealand for my birthday. It was my 40th birthday. I was like, I'm going to go to New Zealand for my birthday and it'll be like a date. And I'm the kind of person, here's this is something else you should know about me. I was thinking about this the other day. I ain't never had the resources and then the vision. Never, ever, not once. <laughs> I have the vision and then the resource comes to being. I was the kind of kid, you know, my grandmother yelled at me one time. I had gone to this on a school trip to the amusement park. And I came home and I was starving to death. My grandmother's like, you ain't ate all day. I was like, no, I had no money to eat. She's like, you went to the amusement park with no money. And I was like, yeah. She's like, you don't be going places with no money. And I was like, why would I not go places? <laughs> I was like, so because I couldn't eat, I was going to miss out on this other little piece of joy? Nah, that's not my equation. And so I would rather go broke than not go at all. <laughs> I would rather figure out, hustle how to get a sandwich, but I'm not going to miss an opportunity because the resources aren't there right now. And that's always been the way that I've moved. And so I, this trip to New Zealand, I was like, all right, let's see. Can we go to New Zealand on $2,500 for 30 days? <laughs> and that was the plan. It was like, can I figure out how to do it? And we did it. Like, I did it. 
Uh, and I did it because I was like, I'm going to find this ticket. I found a round trip ticket for $853. I was like, that's a whole word. Here's the remaining, you know, $1,700. We're going to plan out these little cheap Airbnbs from one location to the other. I worked it, right? Second day that I was in New Zealand. Second day that I was in New Zealand. A friend in the U.S. had a friend in New Zealand and was like, hey, I'll introduce you to my friend in New Zealand. Cool. Did that over email. That friend was like, oh, it's my birthday. I'm having a birthday party. Would you like to come to my birthday party? I was like, sure, stranger. So I showed up, <laughs> I showed up at her house. Um, and the last day, I mean, the, la the I'm the last person there because I ain't got nothing else to do. I don't know nobody. So I'm like, cool. I'm going to sit up here and drink your liquor and talk to you. This is fun. Uh, and at the very end, she tells me about a... Um, about a new job that she has taken recruiting um, social impact entrepreneurs to move to New Zealand for a fellowship to help seed global impact projects in New Zealand. And I was like, I'm a social impact wow. entrepreneur. That sounds like social impact entrepreneurship to me. Uh, tell me more. Uh, by the time I had left New Zealand, I had had met with the CEO of the project of the of the fellowship of the inaugural fellowship project that had not even come into being yet. And I left there and they were like, we would love for you to be a part of this inaugural cohort. And I was like, that's amazing. Two months later, they invited me back to speak at their uh, at their conference. So I flew right back to New Zealand two months later in April, the applications opened up. And in October, I moved to New Zealand on an on a impact global impact visa for social impact change makers. That that's the work of manifestation. That's the trusting, seeding a vision, and then trusting that the universe should it be aligned. As long as the universe is a yes, and we know that because we're moving from spirit and not from brain, not from mind, not from fear, right? But from I trust that there is something better for me. All the rest of it really will unveil itself to you. I didn't have to plan everything. It planned the universe. The universe had already put it in my imaginal cells. It was always coming into being. I just had to be willing to be a yes. You know, so for the people who are feeling like I can't, I can't, I can't figure out where your yes is first. Figure out your first yes. Maybe it is. Yes, I can. Yes, I can at least open the rental pages and start looking for a different house. Like I can, I can at least start to let myself imagine what it would be like to be there. Start there and then see what wants to unfold next. Thank you, Sonia. I, I just love everything that you're sharing and moving from that space of, I mean, what you shared about, you never had the resources, you had the vision and following that. And I could relate to that because that's like my entire life. <laughs> That's my entire life. And that's black women. That's yeah, that's my entire life moving. And I'm just and I my eyes landed on this painting behind me. But I, I bought that painting for myself when I was at my brokest. And I I thought, I, I love this. This makes me feel a certain way. And it was it was hard, you know. It was a couple of hundred dollars, and I was like, "Oh my, shaking, <laughs> almost shaking." But I was like, "I'm worth worth this." And every time I look at it, it reminds me of that. So your story remind me of that. And 
also what you shared about imagination and not letting not letting our in a way not letting our imagination be hijacked because really when we think about it we were imagined into being and that practice of imagination i'm going to get just a tiny bit scientific it creates new neural pathways so even if you if you say okay someone said in the chat they want to go to new zealand even imagining yourself for 60 seconds to two minutes, I believe it's two minutes to create a new neural pathway. You start creating new neural pathways and imagining something else. And I, and I, and I know for sure that our ancestors, they knew how to do that. That's why we're here. And you know, white supremacy is constantly making us forget forget those teachings, forget what that wisdom that's ingrained within us. So yeah, that's just, that just came up, came up for me so much, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to look at what, what the next question I want to ask you. So many and we have, and I know we're going to get to the Q and A, we're still going to get to the Q and A. So if you have questions, you can start typing your questions in and then we'll get to the Q and A in a few minutes. Um, I guess the next question I'll ask you is what edges are you bumping up against right now? If you're willing to share, if not, I have another question because I have a lot of questions, okay? but, um, so what edges are you bumping up against in your radical self-love journey exploration? And what do you want to live into when it comes to radical self-love and maybe, coupled with that. Okay, I'm gonna add one more. Where do you want us as black women and femmes to live into in regards to radical self-love? Mm, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, I am, yeah, so I'm happy to answer this question. And I think it's it's important to answer this question because I think that we, you know, I, I know that it can appear, right? Like, oh, Sonia has arrived. <laughs> Right. Like I have figured out something and now, you know, and now I'm in the, the land of, you know, the radical self-love and utopia in New Zealand where life is perfect and nothing ever goes wrong. Radical <laughs> self-love land. Radical <laughs> self-love land. I live here, right? Um, and absolutely and that is not true, right? The 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 edge, you know, so I have an immediate last year, the twenty I mean, you know, at 2020 handed me my whole ass and I never, ever, ever want to pretend like, I mean, on, you know, Job like levels. I was like, oh, this is, uh, this is biblical. The, the kind of dramas I'm in right now are biblical. Um, and, and I got so, so, and so much of everything that happened last year was, um, here are the places where you are still in illusion, my love. Here are the places where, you have um, substituted um, having someone, the places where you've externalized your own enoughness, the places where I'm enough if I can get this person to love me. I'm enough if this person never leaves. I'm enough if, if I've attained this, if I have this, if I do that. And the universe was like, mm -hmm, we're just going to have to take it all. <laughs> 
And then who are you? Who are you if the lover leaves and the dog dies and you are alone and the job doesn't come through and the friend decides they don't want to be your friend no more and the you know and the disease comes and the car accident happens I'm, I'm naming all the things that happen. Well, who are you? Who are you then? Who are you when all of those things happen that are all the ways in which you thought you could still be enough? And I was like, you know, and that was where surrender came in. That's where okay, I am, I, I, am an, I am enough just by existing. And none of these things, none of these, it is me and it is that which created me, which includes God and my ancestors. And that's, that's is, if I got that, we good, you know? And I didn't feel that way in the process. Be clear, that's where I arrived eventually after having the lesson reiterated. Do you still trust that now? Do you trust that? I'm going to take this. Do you still trust that? I'm going to take this. Do you still trust that? Uh, this has to go. Do you still trust that? You know, and it was massive, I mean, massive grief. And, you know, part of what I got was like, right, my biggest fears, my biggest fears, my fear that, you know, that that I will mess up and everyone will leave me. Right. Like that I will I will mess up and I will be abandoned. Right. That I will get it wrong and I will be abandoned. In some ways, I had examples of that. Right. In some ways that happened. It was like you got it wrong and someone you loved was like, I don't know, not anymore. And and the question was, can I still can I still love me? Can I still love me? Um, and and it was, you know, like that is one of the hardest journeys. And I, so I feel like there's a clearing now, you know, where I'm like, okay, I get that. I get that. I get that. Um, and my current edge is, can I trust what is good? Can I trust what is beautiful as much as I trust what might be about to fall apart? And can I be present in what is good? Can I just be, you know, somebody asked me the other day, they were like, um, you know, how are you? And I was like, I'm wonderful. And I was like, let me, I was like, go back, Sonia, and just sit in it for a second. Because my propensity is to be like, I'm wonderful, and I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. <laughs> I'm wonderful, and the next hard thing is going to happen. I'm wonderful, but I'm, but I'm waiting to not be wonderful, right? And to be waiting to not be wonderful is to be diminishing the gift that wonder is in, in the moment, right? It's, it is to squander what you are being given in the present. And so I am practicing in my growing edge right now. Can I just be inside of things are beautiful right now? And can I just be here? And can I stay here? Can I, and when, and what, and what are my practices when I see my brain starting to wander to the moment when it's not going to be wonderful? <laughs> right. And like trying to prep for that and trying to like protect for that and trying to hedge my bets around that and trying to soften a blow that hasn't happened yet. Right. All the while squandering the wonderful that is right now. And so that's the practice that I'm really, really like, that's my growing edge in this moment is can I can I stay present with right now? You know, I've gotten good at staying present in the sadness, in the grief. Yeah. Can I stay? Can I stay present in the joy? Can I just be here? Um, yeah, that's my that's my growing edge currently. 
Thank you for sharing that with us. There's a moment when you were sharing just brought tears to my eyes. Um, just and I, you know, those tears are just like feeling that of like, can I accept this goodness? Can I accept this beauty? And when you really take it in, it really can bring tears like, okay, let me take in this beauty instead of constantly being on high vigilance, especially as black folks in America, um, high vigilance, is there a threat coming instead? Let me take this moment of joy. And this is part of the reasons why I wanted to create this day. So we had a space, a soft place to land. So thank you for sharing that. And before we go to the Q&A, the last thing I'll ask you, is there a question that you wish you were, you've been asked or, or you wish you were asked? And can you answer that? What's that question and can you answer that? Well, what I love, Chris, is that you asked me the question I usually wish people would ask you, like, what is the what is your fear? What's your vulnerability? What's your growing edge? And so you asked it. So <laughs> Yay, <laughs> wonderful. I'm so glad. So let's let's take some questions from some folks. And if no one has questions, I have more. But um, I see that Erlene. Thank you, Erlene, for asking. Laura asked, Sonia. How have you handled being gaslit in the workplace? Mm, that's a, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, part of part of how I handled it was that I quit. <laughs> so, that's what I did. Um, yeah, so, you know, my mother used to say, you better act like you know that you know that you know that you know. Right. <laughs> and that and all those no's are an anchor. Right. All of those no's are the how do I trust me? And that really is what, again, what radical self-love gives you is tr I can trust myself. And so when I can trust myself, then I can see all the attempts to gaslight me. I can see the efforts to make me think I'm tripping. Right. And I know that I know that I know that I know that I know. And so, and then I allow that knowing to again, give me my next direction, all right? Again, that knowing might be, okay, I can't stay. I, I ain't finna stay here, <laughs> you know? Or that that might be, it's time to apply for that promotion so you're not my supervisor no more. Um, or it could be, um, you know, I'm compiling, I'm compiling a list of the level of gaslighting and microaggressions you compile against me. And so when I hand you this book, <laughs> HR, <laughs> know that I'm ready to go to war, right? Like it could be any number of possibilities, but it starts with you trusting you so that whoever's trying to gaslight you becomes, it becomes clear that that's what's happening and not that you are somehow you know, misinterpreting or misunderstanding or whatever the case it is. And that you're like, no, actually, I see what's moving. And my ability to see what's moving and trust trust myself is going to give me my next step. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. So I'm going to just go to the next question, which is, Nikima asked, how do you love yourself enough to stop self-sabotaging? How do you just let the success to happen without killing it? That's a great, that's a great question and something that I deeply understand. And so the, the self-sabotage is a story, right? There's some story attached to it. All the things that we keep that are um, 
you know, sort of mechanisms that keep us in, in place, that keep us on the ladder, right? That keep us from actually being able to be the full manifestation of our higher selves. I think it's really important to remember that they are born to protect us. They are born out of some adaptation that we really, 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 certainly at least believed we needed in order to survive. And I think that it is important that we bring that kind of compassion to the exploration of it, that there is something trying to protect me from something. And I don't know what it is yet, but let, but can I be compassionate? Can I move toward it? When I was writing The Body Is Not an Apology, the first edition, um, I had already blown through three deadlines. I had been supposed to turn a book and I hadn't turned in nothing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was like out in these streets playing. And, and you know, it was the, the fourth and final deadline I was supposed to turn in this book. And I still had, you know, I don't know, 10,000 words left to write. Uh, and I was writing like 300 words a day. So I was finna no place, nowhere near get done with this book. <laughs> and I was like, something, there's something that is keep, I don't know what it is. There's something, there's a block that wants me to not put this thing in the world. What is it? And luckily I had a friend who did, um, who does a modality called rapid transformation therapy, which is, um, a uh, hypnosis based uh, therapeutic model. And that I, so through the magic that is hypnosis, <laughs> one, I discovered that there were a series of memories and events that were like, if you write, you're going to get in trouble. If you write, you're going to, you're going to do it wrong and people are going to be mad at you or people are going to judge you. It always goes back to, you know, you will be, you will be abandoned and unloved, right? That's always the, that's my core story, right? And we all have whatever our core story is. And it almost always comes down to I'm unlovable. I'm not enough. Some, I'm too much, whatever. I'm too much. And that makes me unlovable. I'm not enough. That makes me unlovable. It's often that our root unlovability. And so what I got though, was like the thing that was sabotaging this amazing book deal that I had gotten offered and this opportunity to put my work that I'd been doing up until that point for nearly seven years out in the world was a story from sixth grade where I wrote a poem and got an F because it was supposed to be an essay, <laughs> right? It was, <laughs> that was like, and I was like, oh, okay. Like 12 year old Sonia is like, no, we got in trouble last time, right? And so part of it is about, and I did that. And then after that, I started writing 3,000 words a day. I finished the book in four days and I turned it in a deadline, right? And so part of it is how do I work with someone else? Work, you know, work with someone else oftentimes is really helpful because you got to find somebody who can get in there in the places where your you, your inner you is like, nope. You know, it's it's helpful to have a modality, a therapist, someone who can help you, you know, find the back doors to your subconscious, because that's what's creating the self-sabotage is there's some story that is really trying to protect you. That like if I if I manifest all of my dreams, then someone's gonna come and take them, you know, or I'll be found out I'm a fraud or whatever it is, right? But get to that, get to that place. And then lovingly, lovingly assure it that you're going to take care of it. Because it's just little you. Usually it's just little you. Little you's like, I'm terrified of the thing that's about to happen. Because 
the last time, and the last time is almost always 30 years ago, the last time, <laughs> the last time it went really bad, right? And so it's an opportunity to, to reparent yourself, perhaps in a way that you were not parented, and to be gentle and loving and kind with the part of you that is trying to protect you. And then to remind it that it doesn't have to anymore because big you got it. I got you. I got you, little Sonia. You're good. I promise I'm going to keep us safe. I promise you can't be abandoned because I am never going to abandon you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad that you shared that story. Thank you for sharing that because um, that reminds me sometimes we don't want to reach out for help. Like you went to that person because one of the things I always say is um, to, to clients, to folks, is like you can't see yourself. The only person you can't see in a room is you. So it's like you're trying to get yourself out of the self-sabotage. And sometimes you do need someone else to, to see, okay, or or show you a pathway so that you can see. Because sometimes it's not they're seeing it, but they're showing you a pathway so that you can, so it can be revealed to you. So Thank you so much for that question. And um, Naima and everyone else, I invite you to come. We're going to do a healing session. So maybe you'll see something else, <laughs> a different something else, something different. So the, the next question is um, from Lauren. And I'm going to add on Nico's question too. I think those, these will be the final two. So Lauren wants to know what authors made you want to start writing. And Nico would like to know, how do you keep going when you feel like you can't take it anymore? I find myself working to be positive and help others. And the ones close to me seem to be the one, seem to want to break my spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for both of those questions. Um, so the first one is, you know, I actually really love this answer because it's, it's just the truth is like, Shel Silverstein made me want to write. <laughs> you know, the, the book Where the Sidewalk Ends made me want to write. Children's books made me want to be a writer. Um, you know, I loved I loved the story you could tell with language. I loved that Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout didn't want to take the garbage out and it piled up into the ceiling, potato grounds and orange peelings. I could do the whole poem. I loved it. <laughs> and it made me want to tell stories like that. Um, and uh, then as, you know, as I got older, you know, I mean, books were really my, you know, they were my, my safe place when I was a child. They were, they were my escape. They were, they were the place where I could belong when I often felt like I didn't belong. And, um, you know, there's a book, uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, that tells the story of like, the weather goes bad, and then the weather becomes food, which is right out of my own dream. So <laughs> I love that book. I loved it. I loved it. And so, yeah, so children's books were the authors that made me want to become a writer, literally. Um, when I, yeah, I think I said I was going to be an author when I was 10. Um, and I include what I was reading was, you know, those books. Uh, and then as I've gotten older, the, you know, the writers that have made me want to be a better writer, a more astute writer, have been, you know, the Audrey Lords, the Lucille Cliftons, the James Baldwins, the Harriet Mullins, the um, Patricia Smiths, the, you know, like poets and, um, you know, black poets, black writers, black thinkers um, who have made me be like, oh, this is, this is what we can 
unveil with language. Yes, I want to do that. Yeah. So, so that's that. That's the answer to that. And then to Nico's question, um, and thank you, Nico, for this question. It, it it feels so true. And so, you know, I I get it. And so for me, what I do, how do I keep going when I feel like I can't take it anymore is I let myself feel like I can't take it anymore. I, you know, I think it's like I hear and you're like, I find myself working to be positive. And I think that you know, one of the most powerful things my therapist ever said to me that undid me was, you know, I was like, I'm trying so hard. And my therapist said, what if you stop trying? And I was like, what? <laughs> what? What? What are you proposing? Right. I'm like, right. The sky falls and everything falls. And, you know, and it was like, oh, right. I am trying to keep out so many things right? That I'm exhausted, that I that I can't even manage. And it's like, again, this practice of, can I just be present with what is real right now? And trust that all of it is weather and weather changes. <laughs> all of it is weather and weather changes. And so, you know, when you have that, like, I feel like I can't take it anymore. It's also information, right? It is also this is telling me something about the conditions of my life, right? This feeling of I can't take it anymore. What is the it? What is it that I can't take? Because maybe I don't need to take that anymore, <laughs> right? Like the it is the it is these people who seem close to me but want to break my spirit. So who is it that I'm being asked to release right now? What is it that I'm being asked to walk away from because it is no longer in service of the evolution that I'm moving toward. This is one of the hardest lessons of last year for me. It was like, you will let, you will be asked to release people you love and you love them and you will be asked to release them. And, and you will trust that it is in service of your highest good. And and so that I can't take it anymore. I really encourage you to look at it as information. What's the it? And what is it? What is the it? And what am I being asked to do to honor me in the face of the it? Whatever that is. What is it that I am being asked to do to honor me in spite of it? Yeah. And as you work with that, as you work with that, you'll be given information. You'll be, you'll be directed, you know. That you will be directed. That that direction is internal, right? Like, here's the deal that I also think is important. It doesn't matter what cosmology or no cosmology you believe. The the guidance is guidance, and that guidance. If you have a you know a God centric belief system, then that guidance is God. If you don't have a God centric belief system, that guidance is you. Because either way that goes, no matter whether you made the imaginal cells and put them in you or God made the imaginal cells and put them in you, they still imaginal cells and they still plan to materialize to your highest form. So it doesn't matter what you believe about it. <laughs> it is still true because imaginal cells are not imagination. They are actual DNA. They're science, right? So it doesn't matter what, what angle it is you go to it. There is a thing in you that already wants to take you to that which is in service of your highest good and your most divine path and purpose on this plane. It is in you. It's already there. I call that radical self-love. 
Some people call it God. Some people call it intuition, self-knowledge, self-awareness, self-actualization of your Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It doesn't matter what you call it. It's there. <laughs> and part of it is asking you to learn how I listen. How do I listen to it? How do I hear it? Right? And that's the work that my, my book tries to take us to. Is how do how do we hear how do we hear this inside of us better such that we might move in the direction that is the highest manifestation of ourselves? Yeah. I think that's the perfect question. Um, the perfect question and answer to just say thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Sonia, for sharing your from your overflow. Because I just it makes me think like if this is your overflow, like imagine if we all were sharing just from our overflow. So thank you for modeling that for us. And I just want to remind everyone, Sonia's second edition is here. And if there's anything else you want to remind us of. Yeah. To, yes, please. So the yeah. second edition is here and the workbook came the out. Workbook. The workbook came out on Tuesday. And so please, those two things together. They're going to set you up. Like they ain't going to do all the work, but they're going to give you a nice foundation to be moving into your own radical self-love work. And so you can buy the books on my website or at any independent, you can buy them any place, but like go to an independent bookseller, go to somebody who sells black, black owned, owned. <laughs> yeah, go to a black owned bookseller and buy the book. Um, I say go there first, come to my website second, go to the ugly A, very last, bottom of the list. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you want to, Kick it with me in digital space. You can do that on Instagram at Sonia Renee Taylor. You can do it on my website, SonyaReneeTaylor.com. You can do it on Patreon at Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, and then you can also follow The Body is Not an Apology in our work at TheBodyIsNotAnApology.com. We have an archive of over a thousand articles about the intersection of identity and social justice and radical self-love. Um, and also our Facebook, Facebook and Instagram pages are The Body is Not an Apology. So. Those are the places to kick it with me. And I hope you will kick it with me. And, you know, thank you. Thank you, Precious. I saw you in the chat. Thank you, Tia. I saw you in the chat. So many folks I saw. It's been, and Therese, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. It, is, um, it added to my cup. <laughs> Aw, thank you so much for saying that. It's It's really been an honor. And I just wish you even more joy, even more radical self-love, because I can say success, but that's where the success comes from, that um, joy, that radical self-love. So, and many blessings in New Zealand and congratulations on everything. Thank you. Thank you for listening, beloved. I'm personally inviting you to join our free podcast community over at embodiedblackgirlpodcast.com where you'll receive a beautiful bonus that includes one of my favorite meditations and a powerful affirmation. And if you love this episode, it would mean so much if you shared it and left a written review. It helps folks find us and lets us know what's resonating with you. And of course, be sure to subscribe. Thank you to Beautiful Chorus for our gorgeous theme song. And thank you for being here. I'll talk to you soon.